Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us for the first half of this week's episode, we have BuzzFeed's critic and culture writer, Allison Wilmore. Hi, Allison. Hello. So, Allison, we're going to have you on uh, for the first half of the show to talk about a piece that you wrote last week called Orientalism is Alive and Well in American Cinema. And then in the second half of this episode, we have a pretty exciting uh, double feature of guests and a partnership with the Talk House podcast. We'll be sharing the first 10 minutes of a conversation between Guillermo del Toro and William Friedkin, two Oscar-winning directors who, uh, as if they knew that we wanted to hear from them, start their conversation by talking about the Oscars and how intense it is and how at one point William Friedkin produced the Oscars and took away all the terms best for all of the awards and made everybody really mad. But first, Allison, we have you here because we were trying to figure out a way to talk about Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, which came out a few weeks ago. It's still making its way across the country. And you wrote this piece last week, kind of pegged to Isle of Dogs and the conversation around it. Uh, about Orientalism and how it works into that movie and a lot of other movies. Um, But to to focus on Isle of Dogs at first, uh, when that trailer came out, I believe at the end of last year, people saw that it was set off the coast of Japan and had a bunch of white actors, and there was kind of a squeamishness around it. Was that your reaction when you first found out what Wes Wes Anderson was up to? Well, I think it was more just like, you're like, oh, this is going to be a conversation, you know? Because, (laughs) I mean, Wes Anderson has, uh, dealing with anything to do with race has never been his strong suit, you know? Uh, And I think you can certainly make the case that all of his movies are about a kind of, like... um, quirky gaze at things, right? He creates fantasy... Ver- most of the most of the movies are set in a fantasy version of a real place or, you know, in his second most recent one, set in a ma- made-up Eastern European country. So he's not, like, new to the idea of kind of creating this tweaked personal vision of, of real places. But I think that he does not seem like someone who had any awareness of the kind of history and baggage that comes with doing that to any place in the East. And I think Darjeeling uh, Limited also mostly uses India as a backdrop, but like also kind of like has difficulty in terms of its kind of gaze at another country. Yeah. And something you get at in the piece really interestingly is um, that, you know, that the, the East in particular, South Asia in particular, or Southeast Asia in particular, like a lot of Western filmmakers have kind of decided that that's a safe one to kind of tap like like that to sort of appropriate and, 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 and sort of use as a backdrop versus, you know, other cultures that they wouldn't sort of dare, you know, infringe upon. What can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what, why do you think that is? Like, wh- wh- where did that come from? Like that that sort of like that that past that people see? Yeah. Well, if I can talk about something academic that I really am not don't have enough expertise to really go into too much. But like Edward Said is like the scholar who wrote a book literally called uh, Orientalism. And his focus is mainly on Europe's representations of the Middle East and the Orients, right? Uh, and then this tendency to kind of make the Orient mysterious or like tradition bound or exotic or but like in all ways to kind of still see it through this uh, idea of like Western stereotypes and kind of oh how the West would like to imagine this. Uh, and, and it is a kind of like colonialist gaze, right? So all of that said, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, you have to look at movies like this in the context of also American cinema, 
continually having a lot of trouble uh, putting Asian and Asian American characters on screen and cultures on screen. And so, um, you know, it's this tendency to not treat these cultures as like real living places, uh, these nations as real living places, but to see them as kind of a collection of quirks or uh, fetishes or however someone uh, would like to think of Asia. You know, it's not an attempt to portray it realistically. It's a fantasy of a place. So how does that play out in Isle of Dogs to you? Well, I mean, I think it's explicitly a fantasy of Japan. I mean, Anderson said as much himself, you know, and I, I, do, I think it's important to point out, I don't think there's anything malicious in terms of the intent of Isle of Dogs. You know, it's an adorable movie. It's very cute. Uh, it's very Wes Anderson. Everything looks like an uh, intricate diorama. Only people can only walk in straight lines. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what if you need to walk at a diagonal? You're doomed, you know. And, and and I think there's a lot that I personally liked about it. I'm a fan of Wes Anderson, but I I think that it is also like, you know, explicitly a collection of a Westerner's ideas about what Japan Japanese things are. You know, hokusai, sumo, uh, you know, kabuki theater. There's poisoned wasabi at one point um, and and then at another. And I think like maybe the kind of most telling thing is the mushroom cloud, mm-hmm. right? Where it's just another thing that he associates with Japan. The death of hundreds of thousands of people by, <laughs> exactly. by Americans. Like it's yeah. this, it's, it's kind of like a winky moment. And you're like, well, <laughs> you really think through what that is? Yeah. I guess, like, my my question is, with regards to, like, this kind of Southeast Asian stuff, or is there any way to, for a filmmaker like, well, not Wes Anderson necessarily, but, like, to actually grapple with this in any, like, proper way? I mean, another thing about the movie that, like, is I thought, you know, in, especially in reading about it, um, is pretty galling, is that, like, there is Japanese spoken in the film by Japanese actors. It's not subtitled. It's made, they're made pretty othered, you know. Um, so that's obviously a big mixed up. But, like, is there a way to make Isle of Dogs in an responsible way for for a Western filmmaker or is it just like... Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, as long as people kind of acknowledge, which is, I think, the, you know, was the point of my piece was that we're really bad at talking about this. The idea of kind of something that can be an homage and still be like a very biased and loaded viewpoint. Um, Yes, I do think that people can look at Japan more clearly. I think it's like, it's just as long as, you know, you have a sense of Japan not as like just a place where anime comes from and where schoolgirls wear Sailor Fuku, you know, uh, uh, and these like only the things that filter through to your particular perspective, but to see it as like a whole place uh, and place that is filled with things that you may not know. Uh, You know, and I think that I don't know that even explicitly the idea of I don't know that even particularly the idea of a fantasy Japan is uh, you know, I was a f- like, and I know not everyone feels this way, but I was a fan of Kubo and the Two Strings, and that was also a fantasy about Japan. But it felt like a fantasy about Japan as like conceived of as a whole place, and not you know, you didn't feel a Wes Anderson like point right. of view that was being like through which something was being filtered. Sure, I mean, I don't want to ever seem like like to be like cultural purity is the only way, you know. And of course, like what one person sees as appropriation, someone else may not. Like, there's no clear line here. But I do think that it's worth like, given how much uh, this type of gaze is like present still in American cinema, like it is worth engaging and talking about. Another interesting thing that's that you get at in the piece that is uh, um, affecting the film industry now is that um, studios in in America can increasingly have to look 
eastward in terms of box office. I mean, China is this huge, not just emerging market. I mean, it is like a it's the dominant market. It's dominant now. market. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we're seeing um, a, like um, in Transformers or whatever, like a big Chinese movie stars who Americans maybe are not or most Americans are not aware of, you know, kind of plopped into sort of side roles in these movies um, in an attempt to p- appeal. And, and, and there's been a lot of grumbling about that. Like this is so like just it's marketed to China, which like I understand the grumbling to some extent, but I'm also like, OK, so it's market like like what, what's wrong with that? Right. We just had a trailer come out this week for a movie called The Meg with Jason Statham's big Oscar play this year about a big shark. And the movie takes place off the coast of China. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a big Chinese movie star. I think it's um, Li Bingbing. Bing. Yeah. yeah. And she's in it. And, and, and because it takes place off the coast of China, like all of the bathers and boat people and like, you know, like people like hanging out on the shore that the big shark's going to eat, I think are all Chinese people. So so in terms of like the you know dynamic of that like that's sort of interesting do you think that like eventually american audiences are just gonna like it's just gonna be like that that's a given with with big blockbuster movies that like there is a heavy chinese kind of component to them yeah i mean it feels like inevitable right for like when you look at the average blockbuster being released in the last like year and a half uh, international market is usually like much larger, like not just larger, but like significantly larger by like, you know, factors larger than domestic. You know, most big blockbusters, we we in the U.S. are not the primary audience anymore. Everyone else in the world is. Uh, and, and those those movies can't really make money unless they please everyone else in the world. So I mean, it, it, it is this really interesting phenomenon because you're like, what is it like to watch an American film in which Americans are not the 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 intended main audience? Uh, I think that's fascinating. You know, most of these attempts to kind of uh, pander to China have been like really clumsy mm-hmm. so far. Sometimes like um, like funny in funny ways. Um, I think that uh, there was apparently uh, on message boards in China for a while there was a saying. Uh, like a flower vase that someone was like being uh, when Chinese actors are put in these movies, they were just largely decorative. They're mm. just there like a vase, you know, yeah. um, the people were aware of them. But I think that you see like in something like Pacific Rim Two, Pacific Rim Uprising, like it's it's not even just pandering to China. Like it, it is like very much like incorporating China as a presence and a Chinese star into the plot. And I think that we're probably going to be seeing that more. And it does in some ways even as like breathtakingly capitalist as it is, (laughs) like it is in some ways like the kind of the opposite of Orientalism, right? Right. It is American studios trying really, really hard to guess at what an Asian market wants for real. What's so funny to me about this exchange that's happening is it it doesn't really feel like an exchange for American moviegoers. Like you think about American blockbusters as this form of American soft power for decades, like teaching the world what America is like. There are so many people around the world who know what American high school is because of Hollywood. But I don't know that people are learning anything about China as a result of this. Like, Do you think other than maybe knowing who Li Bingbing is, there's not really an exchange happening. It's more just like China gets to see what they want to see and America gets to go on pretending that we're the most important people in the world as always. Right. I mean, I, I yes, I do not think that y- you're going to see. I think the the mostly what you can get from these movies is a sense of like American prim- primacy fading <laughs> on an international scale. But I do think that then you see things that are really interesting, uh, maybe uh, as a production more than a movie itself, but like Great Wall, which is yeah. America or which is China trying to do a soft power export and pander to the U.S. and be like, we're going to make a Chinese movie with a primarily Chinese cast uh, about the might of the ancient Chinese army, 
but also we're going to stick an American in here. Um, you like that, right? You guys are going to show up for that. You like Matt Damon. <laughs> and it, it was not successful. But I mean, I think it was, it, you know, I think in some ways, like the, the kind of conversation that was had around that, the fuss that was had around that when that came out was uh, not quite seeing the movie clearly because it wasn't a question of like, uh, of Matt Damon being inserted uh, or, or them like being like, we're going to make a movie in China, but of course we have to have a white lead. This was a Chinese movie trying to be like, what do Americans want? Like, how can we have a Chinese production be a blockbuster in the US? And, you know, I think that like that is maybe the kind of exchange that I'm waiting to see happen, which is for the many blockbusters that are produced by different countries that really don't have a place in the U.S. We don't really know what to do with them. We sometimes stick them in art house theaters, but like, or they get a release on the, you know, fourth floor of the AMC on 42nd Street uh, and they're kind of marketed to diaspora audiences. Or they get remade with Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Uh, That Uh, movie will never be seen, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, vanished into uh, uncertainty. Can I circle us back to I love dogs really quickly and 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 just ask Allison I, what's curious to me about this particular film for Wes Anderson is like I agree with you about Darjeeling Limited and some of his other treatment of um characters of Asian and South Asian descent um there's this great uh I think it's Screen Junkies did a sort of uh, honest trailer of all Wes Anderson films and those things can often be really snarky but this one's actually like very um loving and precise and one of the things they mentioned is like a subservient brown person or or like a love interest who's a brown person and that's like actually so consistent across his films it's it's alarming and like Darjeeling Limited there's a little bit at the very least there's a little bit of interrogation where you get the sense that in that film Owen Wilson, Jason Schwartzman and Adrian Brody are like supposed to be sort of the shitty white tourist guys trying to seek like a spiritual enlightenment um but what I keep coming back to on Isle of Dogs is like, I just don't understand why it needed to be Japan. I don't get it. Other than the, other than the fact that Wes Anderson just said, well, I had this idea for this dog movie. And then I also kind of wanted to make a, a Japanese movie and, and reference Kurosawa things. But like when he made no attempt to really unite those ideas um, or, or really just dig into like why the setting matters in any way, then it does. It feels like uh, the phrase that I've seen a lot of um, Asian critics use is cultural tourism. And that's what it feels like in this film. So I was just wondering, like, wh- if you had any thoughts on that particularly. Yeah, you know, I think like he's always he's been very clear about that. That he, yeah, like uh, had this trash dump uh, dog story, and then also had this idea of um, Japan, and then combined them, and they brought in a Japanese co-writer uh, who has now been kind of like made a talking point in this discussion for people who are like, it can't, there, this can't be a problematic movie. There's a Japanese co-writer, um, you know, uh, which I, I think is an unfair thing to do to someone. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that there's any reason this story is set in Japan, much less like a Japan that's set in the future and that is like very authoritarian, but also none of the technology is, you know, in a very Wes Anderson way. It's a very throwback kind of place. I, you know, and I, I think that thoughtlessness is what you critique uh, yeah. in the same way that he, um, you know, I don't think that he intended this to be a white savior movie, but it kind of it, it becomes one because, you know, in his his idea of having all the Japanese people speak unsubtitled Japanese 
And then having to then give a lot of lines to the foreign exchange student voiced by Greta Gerwig. It becomes this story in which, you know, it takes the brave American schoolgirl to like lead the apparently otherwise complacent uh, Japanese population into rebellion. I saw this movie last night uh, called Beirut with John Hamm and Rosamund Pike, um, which, you know, maybe going back to the, 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 the academic, I forget his name, sorry, like, so that that's like Middle East kind of Orientalism, where it's these two white or several white characters from America in, in like Lebanon in the early 80s, like, sort of trying to sort this crazy mess out that these like brown people have gotten themselves into. Mm-hmm. And it's just like shocking to me still that like that, that people are so, I don't know, sort of unaware of that very tired old narrative. And yet that, it, and it, that it could still happen from, from something like a, you know, kind of schlocky political thriller to a very tailored Wes Anderson movie is I think telling that we have a long way to go before these kind of, you know, the, the sort of, you know, man in a strange land trope is so deeply ingrained in sort of like American cinematic language. I mean, uh, there was the Jared Leto film that you mentioned, right? The outsider, yeah. the Netflix original. You, and you saw it, I assume. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I did. And that's a, the same kind of deal, right? He becomes yep. a Yakuza, right? Yes, he does. And, you know, not just that, but he comes like the best. Yes, he's so good at it. He I mean, there's an uh, not to spoil the ending, but this the ending involves like, you know, a matter of honor and like a samurai sword. Uh, oh, good. It's just the idea that there's so little thought behind what this movie is essentially selling, you know, that like. Uh, no matter how much time progresses, no matter how much time progresses from even like The Last Samurai, which was the movie I thought about, uh, you know, watching, watching. That's the Ed Zwick film with Tom Cruise, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, where he, you know. <laughs> I was sitting next to a Japanese gentleman on the plane. I know he's Japanese because he only spoke Japanese. Uh, and he was watching The Last Samurai on the plane like on my recent like flight back. And so I, I did that thing you do on a plane sometimes where you watch a movie that someone else is watching just sort of idly with the sound off. And I was like, mm-hmm. what a beautiful messed up film this is like it's so beautiful and i'm like i want i'm like getting drawn into ken watanabe's performance and then then like tommy cruise pops up and i'm like okay um but yeah a question that i i have around all of this also is um there there are ways in which these conversations sort of bury a project and i'm thinking of like ghost in the shell and and i don't use Buried negatively, like I feel like that movie kind of deserved to be buried for its various sins. Or, um, you know, th- there's just like a number of projects recently that have come out that people have like voted with their dollars about it or just been disinterested in like what Ghost in the Shell is trying to sell. It's not just because of jo- Scarlett Johansson, but just like it, it, that casting and the conversation around it revealed a fundamental misunderstanding of what that project was and what it meant to people. And so someone's like, I'm not interested in your interpretation of Ghost in the Shell. Um, With Wes Anderson, however, it's been a much um, trickier conversation because first of all, I think a lot of the people, you know, the Asian critics who have had a problem with it, um, their response has been very measured and tempered. And, um, And then like you mentioned this in your piece, Allison, it's almost like, the people defensive of Wes Anderson are the ones sort of out of control (laughs) reacting to any question of whether or not um, there should be a discussion around the treatment of race or Japan in this film. But all in all, it's, I I don't know if this conversation has stuck to Isle of Dogs the way it has stuck to some other projects, or maybe we've reached a tipping point where the conversation can be more measured. We can take the good of Isle of Dogs and also critique it. And it doesn't have to be absolutes, like, let's bury this Jared Leto Yakuza movie um, sort of thing. I Netflix buried that, you know, all Netflix originals <laughs> just come and go as they please. Yeah, you know, I, I do feel like 
it's all I want is for us to be able to have conversations about this without, and I mean, Twitter and online conversations in general tend to escalate towards being like, throw it out or it's the best. And those are your two options. Um, And I don't, you know, I I think there's still plenty that's charming in Isle of Dogs. It's a really cute dog movie. Dogs cry. How can you resist that? Whereas in Ghost in the Shell, it's literally about a Japanese consciousness uploaded into like a white woman's body. Like, like, so she can kind of sell the movie which is like I feel like that's a different level of um, and you know and something else you talked about and this is this has been a, a pervasive thing from you know I mean probably pre pre fifth element but like on and but in in um, most recently in Blade Runner 2049 we see a lot of these futuristic movies that are sort of dystopian in a way um, where you know or, or, or on television and Firefly um, where a sort of assumed dominance of Asian culture has sort of occurred. And so we have, you know, um, Japanese characters or Chinese characters on signs. Uh, in the case of Firefly, people swear in in, in Mandarin, right? Um, uh, and yet, where the hell are the, yeah, the where supposedly do they go? dominant people? Yeah. So as we, in a, in a real, in the real world, um, you know, head into probably a reality where, where, you know, Asian economy and culture is, 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 in many ways dominant in, in in the globe um is there a way for studios to adapt to this in a, in a, in, a, in a healthy way yeah i mean i hope so i think so i mean i you, you know we talked about wes anderson's fantasy fantasy japan one of the most talked about movies this year is set in a fantasy africa and it is mm-hmm. explicitly political you know in black panther it is not like a casual I mean, imagine Wes Anderson's fantasy of Africa. It's like something it'd be like a like I'm, a yeah, <laughs> you know, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not it's not a fantasy of Africa without a deliberate kind of like uh, message, you know, re- regarding like uh, this idea of a community that was like freed from any kind of colonial interference. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that as we kind of slowly as a studio is coming come around to having a variety of different faces and backgrounds you know on screen like and behind the camera like that is you know the way in which we we improve uh representations in general you know and i and i think that that i would love to see a future that i would love to see a future honestly that uh a future that can actually reckon with the idea of like whiteness in the minority, you know, which is something that I think a lot, the original Blade Runner felt a lot more like a, an attempt, even though the main characters were white to uh, engage with the mm-hmm. idea of a truly multicultural city and, and, and a pos- possibly a multicultural city in which uh, the majority population is not white. Uh, and I, and it, it's strange to me to see, uh, Blade Runner 2049 seemed to kind of tilt away from that a bit. You see all of these, uh, all of the signage and all of this decor and all of this influence and then not, it's not reflected. Even in the the kind of invented population, you know, even in the created In the replica, yeah, yeah. Yes, or the hologram, right. you know, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that they're not. And, uh, and I think that, you know, to get away from that, you have to like actually come around to a mindset in which characters given the option, would not choose to look white. Right. Well, I just wanted to, to mention, Allison, that um, we did get a movie about, the definitive movie about um, the white people being a minority in 1995, um, the John Travolta film, White Man's Burden. <laughs> 
lest we forget that that masterpiece with Harry Belafonte. Uh, on the topic of the original Blade Runner, I wonder if for people who maybe are still working out, what is for them an appropriate level of homage versus actual appropriation? Are there other examples of American movies set in Asia or dealing with Asia that feel like they kind of uh, point at a way forward and are maybe doing it correctly? Hmm, I don't know. That's uh, I mean, like I I'm so bad at like coming up with things off the top of. My yeah, head. It, it definitely putting. It well, like, I think you mentioned in your piece that Pacific Rim Two, and you already mentioned it here on this podcast, like kind of just like does do it. I mean, yeah. you know, because it makes her a central part of the story, and and I I feel like. You know, and the reason that for that is that like Pacific Rim did well in America, the first one, but it did fucking crazy well right. overseas. Um, and so they were like, okay, well, we're going to do another one, and we're not going to really care about the domestic box office because it's and it, and it's proving true. It's doing very well overseas, I believe. The second one, um, so maybe the market drives it. You yeah. know, yeah. all of this kind of talking and thinking it helps, but like really, when it comes down to it, we're you know we're a cynical capitalist society. Like where the dollars go, so shall the kind of culture, right? Does this mean we're not going to have any more Star Wars because China doesn't care about it? <laughs> I, I am I, you know eternally curious about what will happen with something like Star Wars, where they feel the need to shift to try and get Chinese why don't chinese attention? audiences care about do we know i mean like i think it just didn't yeah. open there in oh, the right. 70s yeah. so there was no cultural legacy yeah. of star wars and I, I believe when force awakens came they tried to like have all these events to introduce them to star wars and like kind of stuck but they just they're not i mean i've no doubt there are fans of star wars in china but like as sure. a kind of right you know, it does not have it's no fast and the furious is you which know. i love because yes. the, and again you mentioned <laughs> the piece the, the fast and the furious success kind of gives lie to this like thing the thing where like, people are like well we just we can't put actors of color in mainstream hollywood movies because they just don't play well overseas right fast and the furious is a very diverse you know series of films and they do really well they do really well yeah, yeah uh, you know and i think that there are a lot of assumptions that have been made about international markets that now studios are going to have to are having to kind of like deal with and kind of examine to see if they're true. And, you know, I it's really interesting to look at the Chinese box office numbers uh, because, you know, we have a lot. We always get numbers about like, oh, what blockbusters are doing over there. That becomes like filters through to everyday news. But like the Chinese box office is also like has a ton of homegrown films uh, and also like Bollywood films and films in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just, you know, I, I think there's a, sometimes there's a tendency to kind of turn this conversation into being like this idea that Chinese theaters are all just like Chinese blockbusters or American, the approved American imports. And it's not the case. You know, there are there's a lot of competition going on there. And, you know, South Korea has a robust film industry mm -hmm. and Japan, you know, like it's it, it, I think that hopefully what changes gradually or or quickly who knows is that american you know mindset or white american mindset just kind of opens itself up to the idea that like there's more and yeah. they're always i mean not always but like there for a long time there has been more and like um and and just kind of accepting that fact rather than sort of i don't know panicking and throwing you know a sort of huge movie star in China into like a Transformers movie. Be like, right. Well done. <laughs> Taken care of. Everyone will be happy now with yeah. this fine product. Um, yeah. And I did want to say before, you know, as we, as we, you know, move to wrapping this up, like uh, I should point out, this is still like a conversation that is, uh, you know, largely had with by Asian American critics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it is one of the kind of like big and sometimes like uh like uh, exasperating, you know, counters to 
how Asian American critics write about Asian representation on screen, which is people be like, well, in Japan, they don't care. Or in like actual Japan, in actual China, they don't care. Uh, and I think that they, like it's really difficult to get the sense of what a whole country feels regardless. But also... I think that like they, these are obviously also different conversations, you know, for people in Japan, people in China, people in different countries in Asia. You have a lot of homegrown media. You grow up surrounded by, you know, films and television produced by people who come from your relative background. And you see yourself on screen, at least in some ways, a, a lot. Uh, and I, I think that to kind of simplify this into being like, well, real Mm-hmm. you know, Japanese people, real Chinese people, or or any kind of variation of that has cropped up a lot in this Isle of Dogs conversation online, uh, I think is to kind of miss the point, not to erase those people's right to have an opinion on that. But that, you know, uh, this is, for a lot of Asian Americans, this is one of the major events in Asian Asian representation on screen this year so far. And... Yeah. And this is how it looks in the context of American cinema. Coming up this summer, uh, we have, um, you know, a a studio film from Warner Brothers called Crazy Rich Asians. That yeah. like that's a big deal because that's an Asian director, all Asian cast. Are you, is that? Ex- I mean, it's exciting, right? Like that's good. Sure, uh, yeah. I'm really excited. I mean, as someone, you know, my mom is Chinese Singaporean, and this is a Singaporean uh, set. There you go. Uh, yeah. Kind yeah. of. I don't know how to describe it, like a soap, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to see it. You know, I it's got John Chu is directing. He's a director who I've, I've found his stuff really fun before. It's got a great cast. And I'm also just really curious to see how it goes over, you yeah. know, because I think there hasn't been a, a studio... Uh, a studio production that was all Asian or Asian American cast like this since I think the Joy Luck Club. Yeah, I think that's true, which yeah. is <laughs> scary. A long time ago. John Chu was a director of one of the weirdest uh, Chinese overlapping uh, blockbusters of recent years, which is Now You See Me yes. Too, in which they like take, <laughs> they like teleport to Hong Kong. I can't totally remember how it happens, but it's a very strange combination. It's magic, Katie. <laughs> it was magic. The thing that I want to say about Crazy Rich Asians, uh, you know, the star, the film star is Constance Wu, who's this great actress on um, on Fresh Off the Boat, and among other things, and something that I've really admired in Constance Wu and a number of other um, Asian, Asian American actors is how vocal they're being. Like, it's not just critics or fans saying like, hey, we're on, I feel like we're on a tipping point of this no longer being acceptable in Hollywood, some of the more blatant whitewashing that has happened, like, say, from Marvel, etc. But it's not just critics as fans. It's like, these actors are feeling emboldened to talk about it as well. Uh, Sandra Oh just gave like a really good interview to our colleague Ioana Desta about uh, how hard it has been for her to find a role post Grey's Anatomy. Um, Now she's on Killing Eve and and killing it over on BBC America. But... um, and, and that, to me, it makes me really happy because I think for a long time, people didn't talk about this in Hollywood. It's it's a lot of things were not talked about for fear of reprisal or losing jobs. And I just appreciate like the cojones on Constance Wu just be like, no, this is bullshit. Let's stop it. And the fact that she's now like headlining a studio film um, based on talent and there's no like reprisal for her talking about it makes me extraordinarily happy and really feel like maybe it's blinkered optimism for me, but really feeling like we are on the precipice of, you know, this attitude being impossibly regressive. You know, it is already, but being seen that way by studios and filmmakers. 
Yeah. And, you know, uh, Asian representation on screen in like Hollywood some has some of the worst numbers, uh, you know, for years has had some of the worst numbers. And, you know, certainly as someone who growing up who mostly saw like Long Duck Dong and the last part of A Christmas Story where they go to the Chinese restaurant, like as like some of the most regular instances of, uh, you know, Asian characters being put on screen, you really you get really aware of just it's not just that there's like uh, not much visibility, but that it's often been so bad. Um, so I I am super heartened by the fact that this is apparently becoming a conversation people are actually hearing. And I, you know, I, I don't want to put like too much burden. I, I always feel a little uneasy being like, everyone should support this blockbuster made by a giant corporation because, you know, it's a political yeah. act. I'm like, eh, it's still, a, I don't know, it's an act of consumerism, really, mostly. But I do really want to see how Crazy Rich Asians does. I, you know, I, I. I'm just so curious and kind of hopeful to see it. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and you know, um, not to equate the two things, but you know, uh, like Warner Brothers also put out Love Simon this year, which was right. like the first thing with a gay lead or whatever. You know, that they're trying, and that movie did well, and there was clearly an audience for it. And I think that you know, obviously, Black Panther is the huge symbol of like, if you give a move like people a movie they've been do- craving, they will go see it, and and it will do well. Um, hopefully that bears out with, with Crazy Rich Asians as well. Yeah, I know. It's funny that movies, like large movies, always seem like the the last the last kind of like thing to roll around. It's funny to see Love, Simon be, you're like, this is how long it took. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and this is all it is. It's just this right. little cute romantic comedy. <laughs> and it's like this huge seismic cultural moment for a lot of people. So, Well, thanks so much, Allison, for joining us. We will look forward to your review of Crazy Rich Asians and uh, everything else you write between now and then. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun. So here with me to introduce this next segment, uh, this fascinating interview between Guillermo del Toro and William Friedkin, we have Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief at TalkHouse Film. Nick, thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you, Katie. Really good to be with you. Yeah. So, so you came to us with this uh, conversation that you were going to get these two now Oscar-winning directors on the line together. Um, and you guys do this at TalkHouse all the time. You get these really notable people in conversation with each other. But as I understand it, getting Guillermo del Toro for an interview uh, weeks after his Oscar win was not the easiest thing you've ever put together. How did this all get assembled? He and I were DMing on Twitter like a couple weeks before the Oscars. And I floated the idea of, of him sitting down with, with Friedkin because of Friedkin's new movie, The Devil and Father Amorth. And he was super excited to do that. He, literally, I would send him a message and he'd respond within like 10 minutes. And I was like, this is so easy. And he's always been kind of an accessible guy. Like even now that he's such a big deal, he's always seemed like one of those directors who was kind of just a film nerd at heart. Completely. No, he's just the, the, the sweetest guy. I mean, you can hear that uh, in his conversation with Friedkin. He's, he's just like, a delight. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> after the Oscars, uh, his, his schedule kind of got a little, a little bit fuller for, for some reason. But um, yeah, it was, I had the idea to, to involve uh, you guys as well. And that, that worked out really well. Well, it was such a dream country for us that this section that we're sharing, we've got like a 10 minute exclusive of the conversation. The rest of it will be on the talk house next week. Um, but that they jump right into talking about the Oscars, which is, of course, the thing we obsess about. And I think it's obvious when you listen to it that Friedkin, being who he is, can get answers out of Del Toro that no one else would be able to. Is that the is that how the talk house works, that you guys always just get these guys to let their guards down a little bit because they're with fellow filmmakers or musicians or actors? Definitely, it's something where the tone of the conversation, the 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 level that it, it's at, 
the way that people talk to each other is different because it is a prof- professional that these these are people who are who are friends uh, who are peers often like these are people talking to their heroes so it, those conversations are different and and I think it's definitely true that just the the way that those guys connect is 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 really unique yeah so my favorite part of the conversation we're about to hear, I've told you, is that Guillermo refers to a word season as going into the heart of darkness and going to event after event yeah. after event. Yeah. Uh, any particular highlight in there for you? When we got the, the the tape back from from LA, it's literally like two hours, and it's it's just there's so much in there. We're running a two parter on, on Talkhouse n- next week, and part two is this like remarkable like discussion about these really big topics. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's life and death. It's the apocalypse. It's religion. It's good and evil. It's, it's. Sounds like a William Friedkin movie. It's really intense and fascinating. And these guys just uh, riff off each other so well. So to hear this full conversation, you can subscribe to the Talkhouse podcast on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And uh, both parts will be released uh, in the coming weeks. What are the exact dates now? Part one is April 17th. Part two on April 19th, Tuesday and Thursday. Make sure you hit them up. They're great. Let's hand it over to William Friedkin and Guillermo del Toro. If you're ready, I wanted to start, if I may. Yes. It's great to see you. Same here. Uh, The last time I saw you was just before Mm -hmm. the uh, Oscar nominations came out. Even nominations. And uh, I haven't seen you since, and I wonder how or if you feel your life has changed since you won? Well, it's been, it's been very crazy. The, the speed of it has been so fast that uh, I think that uh, me, myself, I, I felt uh, uh, an enormous interior change and the nominations came out. I felt uh, really uh, beautifully uh, embraced. And then the DGA, which is, in my opinion, uh, one of the awards that for directors counts so much. Oh, yeah. Because it's your peers, and what we do, honestly, and we were talking about this before we started recording, the alchemy, which is directing, a lot of people think it's chemistry, and it's not chemistry, it's alchemy. It's transmutation, it's, and only those that, practi- that are practitioners in the art know what it entitles. And so when you get recognized by DGA or the directing Oscar, it's incredibly beautiful. So that, that changes you inside. Then I also think, as a person, uh, going through the season, which starts seven or eight months mm-hmm. before and now ends almost the week or the day of the Oscars, uh, you go up and down all the time, you know? Were you um, anticipative about it? Were you concerned uh, really about winning? Well, it's funny because you start... Uh, it's almost like uh, it's almost like uh, heart of darkness. <laughs> you start with one mission. You start saying, "Look, you know, uh, whatever happens, happens." And then you get the nominations, and little by little, you are in. You know, you you do you do wake up. Uh, you look at at everything happening. You you become much more uh, sort of invested the more time passes. And I, I, I really must tell you, for me, and it may be because of our profession, but the, the thing was directing, the, the directing Oscar. 
because he's uh, and and the DJ uh, because uh, those are also nominations and awards that I didn't get uh, with Pan's Labyrinth. I got writer, foreign film, and so forth, and is a recognition of the peers that you get really invested in. I have to tell you, when I won, mm -hmm. I had no expectation of winning, mm -hmm. even after I won the Directors Guild Award. Yes. Because sometimes they, they don't, don't match up. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yes. But the Directors Guild is less about the popularity yes. of the film, how it's much people love the film, yes. than the Oscars are. Yes. You know, the directors is about how well the film is made, yes. and generally the members know. Yes, they know how well it's made. Yeah, uh, I personally have always had, and I'm 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 really thrilled for you. But I personally have always had an antipathy toward awards. Mm -hmm. I believe they're subjective. They are. You know, there is no finite, it's not a track meet. No. It's not a boxing no. match. It's not a tennis match. No. Uh, how do you talk about winners and lo losers? One year, I produced the Academy Awards, and I took the word best out of it. And I got a lot of hate mail, but uh, it was, they announced not the best directing or the best acting in a feature film, the award was the Academy Award for an actor in a featured role mm -hmm. or the Academy Award for the director of a feature film or a mm -hmm. short film mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And at the end, I had Warren Beatty explain that we really don't... Yes, he was there then too. But <laughs> we, and he was able to read a card then. But we, we don't think about the best... Guillermo, oh, you know, yeah. there are great films. There are films that you love. And very different amongst each other. How do you, what is a better film? The Treasure of the Sierra Madre yeah. or Singing in the Rain? Yes. How do you match them up? It is, it is a thing that, and also the meritocracy of sports, which is uncontestable. The, the, the goal was in or not. The, the boxer went down mm -hmm. or not. Was, in, was the boxer down for the count? There is not such a thing in the arts in general. Literature, painting, you know, it's, it's impossible. It's not, it's not so cut and dry. And what, what I think is we are so many species. It's like you have a perfect uh, Labrador next to a perfect uh, <laughs> uh, English bulldog. So they are so different. Right. And, and, and really why, uh, I think that the reason, uh, DGA, uh, has a special meaning for directors is because it's about, uh, the intricacies of how a movie is put together. Is it logistically majestic? Is it well staged? We know that the ballet between the camera and the actor, the delicate, uh, balance of the editing, the tone, these things, uh, are judged by our peers and by peers that are ADs, second ADs. I mean, people production, that, managers. production managers, people that are in the field with you. It is, it is a different gauge, but I, I agree. I think it's extremely difficult to say, uh, I mean, even, even when, even the controversy, when people say, well, Wings was the first movie to win and it, there were other... But, you know, you go back and watch that movie and the inventiveness with the camera, it is it's staggering. Great. It's great. Well, one year, I think, there was Gone with the Wind, The mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz, yes. and uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Yes. 
and seven others of that caliber. caliber. How, you know, uh, Gone with the Wind is hype. Yes. Uh, you know, it took a lot of money to do it, which they had. I don't think it's a great picture today, but Citizen Kane is. Yes. And that never won Best Picture. It won a screenplay award, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's about it. Not cinematography. No, and, and you know, I think that you have to uh, truly, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that where it gets to be very, where you get very engaged is in the maybe. You get really engaged in the maybe because it's, it's like, it's exactly as when you're in high school and you're going to ask a girl out, you know, the second best answer is no. <laughs> you know, you got an answer. And, yeah. But I think as the, as the pulse accelerates in the award season, you go, is it going to be a yes? Is it going to be a no? And that's when you get caught. Yeah. Once you get it, I remember when Pan's Labyrinth didn't win Best Foreign Film. Uh, I felt a relief. I felt a huge relief. And I said, okay, first of all, I can take off my shoes which are super tight. And second of all, I got, you know, I, 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 had, I had a great feeling. Not winning did not change the movie. It was exactly the same movie that it was when I went into the ceremony. And that you have to take it exactly the same way if you win. You go, the movie doesn't change. It's going to find its staying power with an audience, with being remembered. And, and it doesn't change. It's just that... The last six weeks, four weeks, get to be such a pace. You know, you are going from one uh, showing to another. You're going from one festival to another, from one awards show to another, that it really accelerates, you know? Then I think the problem becomes, can you keep your focus yes. on what your internal mission as a director is? And your craft, yes. And not just take everything that comes along, which I'm sure you're being offered now yeah, for money by people who don't know what it is that your real focus uh, is. consists of. Yeah. And th that's when you need to focus even more yeah. because the tendency is to want to have you do the same thing again. That happened, that happened to me to a degree actually after Pan and I learned a lesson. You know, it happened to me after Pan, and I I didn't forget it, and that's why I very declared, very 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 purposely, I I said I'm gonna take, I'm not gonna direct anything until 2019. I'm gonna take a sort of a sabbatical, and that is not entirely true. The three or four projects that could be have been in the works for a year now, but I I said I don't want to jump into anything. I don't want to be busy doing something. I want to land. I want to land as a person, you know. Whatever happens, I didn't know if we were going to win or not. I declared I'm not directing anything until 2019. Because that's when I think that success is more disorienting than failure, by far. Oh, yeah. By far. You get drunk. And you get lost. And that people, we are such a culture of success. As a, The West is such a culture of success. is achiever getter and and you really lose yourself in that
that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Mike will be back next week. We miss him. Uh, he'll be back before you know it. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and we're all on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best native advertisement for Little Gold Men spinoff podcast, Still Watching Westworld with Richard Lawson and Joanna Robinson, goes to Allison Wilmore. Everyone will be happy now with this fine product. <laughs>